0: Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we are delighted, thrilled, absolutely pleasantly pleased to have with us I guess you could say a living legend on Broadway, Joel Gray. We, we knew Joel first, of course, in Cabaret as the MC back in 1966, most recently as The Wizard in Wicked. In between, we knew Joel <laughs> as George M, George M. Cohan, as Charlie the Seventh in Good Time Charlie, as Jacobowski in The Grand Tour, Amos Hart in the revival of Chicago, umpteen movies and appearances all over Joel.
1: Well, at least you said living.
0: Living. A living legend. Absolutely. (laughs) It would be a much
1: quieter interview (laughs) if you were not. It would be all us talking. Well, somehow living legend is, is not... (laughs) <laughs> very appealing to me, this notion. I think that if you're living, I don't think you're really a legend. Well, you know, yeah, Lauren, but, but, Lauren but Bacall
2: just had that, that conversation, I guess, at one of the film festivals where somebody referred to Nicole Kidman as a legend, and Nicole and <laughs> said, I like her very much, but you have to be a lot older to be a legend. And also, what, <laughs> what
0: makes a legend? If you say a show, you think of a person immediately. You say, hello, Dolly, you see Carol Channing. You say, cabaret, it's Joel Grey. I mean, is that
1: legendary?
2: I mean,
0: I think so. When you're so identified with the show, because you created that role, you made that show what what it
1: was. Really. Okay, <laughs> so you there you, 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 you all will back. buy that, huh? Yeah, I love it now. <laughs> but let's jump. Legend, back. legend, legend. I'm a legend.
0: Well, <laughs> your your legendary status began at age nine, I'm told. Your your father, of course, legendary in his own right, Mickey Katz, the comedian. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your your you upbringing? Were growing
1: your, up in a showbiz family, yeah,
0: showbiz family.
1: Well, actually, it, it wasn't really a classical showbiz family. My father was a musician. And he played the clarinet and saxophone, and had a a kind of a, a novelty band in Cleveland, which he did what was very big at the time in the forties special material and he was picked up by Spike Jones and who was the novelty band in the you know in the world and from there on he went to Los Angeles and he started making records like Spike but with a yiddish flavor and they were very successful but growing up with him was not really about the theater or or even vaudeville because you know musicians are a very specific group of people and my dad was essentially at heart a musician and a great guy and
2: in looking around at bios, I saw several refer to your father as being the gurgler on the Spike Jones records. was that? Yes. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> the famous secluded
1: rendezvous. <laughs> <laughs> the famous yes.
0: cocktails for two. That's <laughs> it. Wow. I never knew <laughs> that. Who <laughs> asked for it? And it's and nice to a, see
2: that the family chat out. You ha- you, there's not a lot of call for it for you, but it's, it's nice to see that it's there.
0: Okay. <laughs> kind of like father like son. <laughs> Very much. Well, so you started very young. You went on stage. at What was your first I went on appeared? stage.
1: Uh, I fell in love with the theater. I did not know how to play any instruments. I didn't think I would ever sing or dance. I just wanted to be like Laurence Olivier or Peter Laurie. Those were my... my uh, An interesting pair. Don't you think? <laughs> well, they were real great character actors, and that always interested me. And
2: so how did it come about? As you say, if it wasn't really, your parents weren't pushing you into it?
1: I think my mother was probably pushing me very, you know, quietly in her own persuasive way. Because I think she probably wanted to be an actor. And uh, had no talent in that department at all. And I just loved it. And so she sort of, you know, helped that along and turned it from something that I just loved to do into something I had better do so how did your father pick you up and how did you work into your father's
2: act it says at age 16 you began with that
1: well I I wanted to be on stage and there was no place for me to be at 16 you know I was a a legit actor from 9 to 12 or 13 and then we moved to California and there was nothing there was no theater there uh So he had this variety review called the Borscht Capades, and I just needed to get on stage. So I didn't speak a word of Yiddish, but I learned this famous song by Lebedoff called Romania, Romania. And I sang that, and he wrote some special lyrics for me. And before I knew it, I had an act, uh, and Eddie Cantor saw me and put me on television, and... The rest is sort of a very long story. That, that was the old Colgate comedy era, was uh-huh. yeah, yeah. So you, you kind of went into the
0: family business when you started working with your father, and you kind of graduated beyond that into television. Yeah. What about Broadway? When, when did that first That
1: start? happened much later. I went from um, Broadway to television and couldn't really get a job in the theater because there was a big bias against nightclub performers in those days you, you, if you did one you couldn't do the other and it was sort of like they looked down their nose at people who worked in nightclubs I never wanted to work in nightclubs I was always an actor I always hated nightclubs but as far as the public was concerned I was this nightclub performer I played the Copa here, there, everywhere and auditioned when I could and you know had a lot hard time hard time getting anybody to take me uh, seriously as the actor that I was and Finally, I did a lot of television. I finally did a um, a review called The Littlest Review at the Phoenix Theater with a lot of interesting people, Larry Storch and Charlotte Ray. And um, then I just got back to struggling and trying to you know, trying to do it, and I finally got a part on Broadway uh, as the replacement for Warren Berlinger in Come Blow Your Horn. And I spent a year... Uh, Doing that, but still no musical, and uh, became friendly with Hal, Hal Prince and his wife Judy, and uh, actually I met John Cander, uh, who was playing rehearsal piano for Gypsy at the time, mm-hmm. and I went to Fred Ebb because I was trying to do a nightclub act to make a living for my family, and I went to him to talk about you know writing some special material and. Uh, I got hired to do "Stop the World, I Want to Get Off," and that sort of turned everything around.
0: So you appeared in that.
1: I appeared in "Stop the World" and you uh, on Broadway. Anthony I replaced Newley Anthony in that? and I did the the national tour for a year. And then
0: the telephone rang one day, and it was Hal Prince, and yeah, he said, "I think I have
1: a I have a part that you might like," and. Um, I, I read it and I thought well there's not much of a part here it's just songs and originally when he spoke to me I mean I was dying to work with him and with Fred and John uh, but originally there there were no lines and it was one big number in act two in the sort of the way the follies the uh, Loveland mm-hmm. section is that 20 minute. Section mm-hmm. that's what the, how they had originally envisioned all the cabaret numbers to happen in Act Two at one time. And We're of mm. course talking about cabaret
0: before it was while it was still being created.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: yeah, and then the role of the MC, which you ultimately played, had been kind of a very small role.
1: No, it was this exactly what I'm but telling you. It was this, it was this section. Section. Yeah, it's 20 it's minute one, it's section. One section. Uh-huh. It was a big tour de force. But I thought I have been waiting to act on Broadway for a long time, and this will just brand me as a song and dance man so i was somewhat reticent to say yes even though i wanted to work with these people and i knew it was going to be a great project so my job was to make this a true character and and to have him live and uh be terrifying and funny and all these things uh without a word of dialogue pretty much And how did you work on that, and how was that received?
2: Because, as you're saying, you've been kind of working your way up, but you were not a major Broadway star who could come in and say, this is a vehicle for me, I'd like it to be this. How were the conversations with with John and Fred, with Hal, with Joe Masteroff?
1: How did that all... Well. Uh, actually, it, it sort of straightened itself out without me because bef- between these the meetings that I had with them when this was to be a 20-minute uh, number in Act 2, they decided that these numbers should go out th- throughout the show and should sort of presage or reflect on the scenes before them and really make a comment. And so it became a very different part that started the show, finished the show... And had some of the greatest musical theater numbers written, and this was all in the era before we would have endless
2: workshops. I would imagine, so it really was a case. You, no, there was no workshop. You basically you had one script that you signed on to, and came in. Yeah, but we
1: rehearsed, and there were a lot of, a lot of growth and changes, and then we opened in Boston, and uh, I'll never forget that opening night after Vilkoman finished. Um, we had no idea what we had, except that we all liked it. We all knew that it was tough and strong material and how it was inspiring. And it was, it was great uh, working experience. But when we finished Willkommen, we all had to go off stage and make our changes. And the audience refused to let the show go on. After the opening number. In a positive way. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it had, and then we all stood backstage and stared at each other and said, what do we do? What do we do now? <laughs> now, what do we do? Do you, do you go out? Do you do, you do it again? Do you, and we just had to wait it out. It was kind of one of the most just exciting. Cheering and, cheering and applauding? Cheering and applauding, and, you know, it was just insane.
0: So what did you do? Did you then go on with it, or? Yeah. Just, but just it, picked up?
1: it took a long
0: time. Do you get that same reaction every night then, after that? No. no. Because people
1: came to, to well, know about the show. and Yes, it yeah, was reviewed, yeah. and they knew that the show would, in fact, go on. <laughs> they didn't have to insist. Now, I,
2: I have to ask, as we're talking about the show, and, and before we play music from it, one of the great things, we're, we're having this conversation as you celebrate your 50th anniversary, uh, I believe was, was what the press materials were saying you were looking at in, in the business. Though, if we really go back to age nine... A bit my longer, my yes. A <laughs> teeny bit longer. I'm going to be, be politic, but...
1: Um, we're really talking ha- about Broadway.
2: I have yeah, to yeah, ask, about, because about of York. some of the amazing people that you've had the opportunity to work with, and certainly Candor and Ebb were, and, and, and how Prince were, were contemporaries, you were doing a show with Lotta Lenya. Yes, yes. And that was very inspiring. Which, which takes you to... An, and I'm just curious, though, you did not play scenes with her, um, as I recall the structure of the show.
1: Except backstage.
2: <laughs> well, that's what I want to know about. What was what was it like to be she, with Maude Lenya?
1: Lenya, uh, I think, informed the the entire show with her authenticity, without even saying anything. But I would always go and check. I said, is, is, "Is this pronunciation right? And would this character do this?" And she always thought that I was on target. So it was. She gave me the confidence to be as outrageous and disgusting as I was.
0: Now, of course, on the creation of the show, as the show was evolving, you were working closely with John Kander and Fred Ebb. Fred Ebb just recently passed away. Tell us a little bit about them, if if you would.
1: Well, you know, when when things begin and you're not legendary as they became, we were just great working mates and loved each other's uh, talent and uh, loved each other as people, and that Never changed, really. In the the nearly fifty years that we worked together, John and Fred and I, and his uh, his funeral was one of the funniest funerals I've ever been to. Really, I mean, some of the greatest jokes and lines and bawdiness, everything that Fred would have loved, was the the. Uh, Sensibility of the the whole afternoon, and um, Liza and Cheetah. Uh, Cheetah Rivera said when she got up, she said, "You know, Fred and I often talked about what happens. You know, when one of us dies." And he said that when he died, he wanted f- for sure for me to wail and scream and cry and beat the ground and beat my chest. And say to God, why me? She says, but I'm not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But they had that kind of hilarious relationship where they would talk about that. And she also said that that he wanted to have a a coffin that would hold two, (laughs) a double coffin, (laughs) and that when she would be finished talking about him, he would reach out and pull her in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What what, what kind of a guy was Fred Ebba or, or John Candor for that matter? Well, John Cander
1: still is. Yes, is. Yeah. Um, an amazing, smart, charming, um, very, very straightforward, joyous person and a hard worker. And um, he's one of my closest longtime friends ever. And Fred was really much more focused on the theater as his life the theater and his friends were his life. John uh had a very different perspective. John when he left the work, he left it and was totally refreshed by the rest of his life his his love and his home and his friends and the opera. So that's the that was the biggest biggest basic difference, but they always worked brilliantly together up until last week. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Cabaret, you were, of course, in the original Broadway version. You were in a revival later on, also the movie version. Do you have a favorite song from that show, one that, that you yourself performed?
1: I do. I, I always thought that the gorilla number in which uh, the MC sings a love song, beautiful love song, its most beautiful candor melody, called If You Could See Her Through My Eyes. And it's one of the meanest, naughtiest, darkest songs that they ever wrote and people sort of thought it was fun when it was going on and they didn't know quite, they were thrown off base by this man and this girl gorilla that he said he loves and at the end uh, there was this terrible line he says, if you could see her through my eyes she wouldn't look Jewish at all and that's when the play really turned into what was going on in Nazi Germany and the audience was not ready for it they laughed and then they gasped and was uh, was pretty strong. Wow. Anyway, I love that song. but well, let's listen to that.
0: From Cabaret, if you could see her through my eyes. Our guest today, obviously, Joel Gray. Joel, over your your years on Broadway, any particular favorite moments, good, bad, or otherwise? Fun things, dramatic things? stirring, moving things?
1: Well, you know, to be in something that's so controversial and shocking. As Cabaret. As Cabaret was. uh, And to be so politically on top of it and tough and not not soften it
0: was kind of a great experience. And in the context of the mid-1960s. Yes, not exactly With the what was the going on today, right
1: yeah. in Chicago and everything. It was, uh, it was a powerful thing because you knew, you knew you had the chance to change people's minds about a lot of things, and yet over the years, people have come up to me and say, "Oh, your character was so fun. It was such a fun show that cabaret." So mm-hmm. no matter how horrible it is, some people refuse to uh, let that into themselves, and they see only you know the lighter.
0: Maybe just didn't get the message. They
1: didn't want to get the message.
0: Because
2: the message is clearly there. And at that time, of course, it really made you a star. It made you a personality. You were in demand. You say you came out. You said you had a tough time breaking out of being a nightclub performer. But then you ended up. There were a lot of TV guest shots and things Mm -hmm. like that in the era. What was that like for you? Just that that change in in your stature. So. So really so suddenly, you'd been a solid working actor working his way well, up. Well, I had done
1: a lot of things that almost happened, almost, you know, kicked me into a, a real starting position. I was uh, Jack in Jack and the Beanstalk, which was the first kinescope on NBC. Um, and that, that was pretty pretty big and uh, stop the world. Really, kind of ch- changed my reputation in the theater, and sort of made it possible for uh, for Hal to introduce me, so to speak, because this was the first role that I got that I got to initiate right. and create. I was I was a replacement for Tommy Steele, for Warren Berlinger, for Anthony Newley, uh, for about five or six years that wasn't although there were very good parts it was tough and I I thought am I ever going to get my own part and that
2: gave you a leverage to begin doing recordings of other material that you chose to do and there's just been this two album reissue that that's just come out of of some of those how did those come about i should mention the name of the reissue joel gray the magic of joel gray combining two columbia earlier al- albums only yeah. the beginning and black sheep boy mm-hmm. and uh, 67 16- and 69
1: drg probably. Yeah, has is, is put these out. I had no idea. It was a, a delightful surprise to me because uh, the first album, especially, was sort of in the mood of the Barbra Streisand famous album, like Coloring Book. Yeah, like Coloring Book, and uh, Happy Days Are Here Again, mm-hmm. and it was. I had gone to school with Peter Matz, the orchestrator from that Barbra Streisand famous album. And, of course, we wanted to work together. And now I had the opportunity. Columbia uh, was having a great success with the Cabaret album. And so they asked me what I wanted to do. And we just picked out you know, a number of songs that I've always loved, like um, You Mustn't Kick It Around from Pal Joey. And uh, Peter Matz did the most startling and terrific arrangement. And if you're going to play it... Which I, we I, will right now. Yes. I think it would be nice to advise your audience to turn the volume up. Up. (laughs) And to
0: roll down the windows on their car so everybody else can hear it. it. (laughs) It's really a lot of fun.
1: It's a lot of fun to hear big.
0: From Wicked, Joel Gray as The Wizard with Wonderful. We skipped over one very important project, Chicago. You were in Chicago in the revival on Broadway.
1: Right. It um, It was a project that they were doing at Encores,
0: Mm-hmm. which and for our audience's city center uh, here in New York mm-hmm. does a five-performance revival of older shows. Mm-hmm. And this was 1996 or thereabouts? I think like so. so. About then. I think that's close. Of uh, the show which originally had been on Broadway in 1975, so it was about 20 years With later. With
1: Jerry Orbach, With- Gwen mm-hmm. Verdon, and Cheetah Rivera. But now they were doing just this, you know, one week, and I had remembered seeing the show and... The, the character the, the actor was a wonderful actor who played Amos was this big six foot tall you know ha- somewhat burly mechanic kind of well, describes you really it was, thought thought was Barney Martin was, in the was, original production a who
2: a lot of people would recognize from Seinfeld exactly. as Jerry's father right. so obviously a few years later but that that was the original
1: anyway he was it was so specific and I thought I can't do this and um, Walter Bobby was directing it. And he called and he said, uh, I think you should do this. And I called a very close friend of mine who's a musical theater director and teacher who I've worked with over the years, uh, by the name of Charlie Repoli. And he said, you have to do this. He says, you can f- put your stamp on this. I said, I don't think so. But I was I was living in Los Angeles and I said, okay. I you know I usually do that. I'm I'm you need to very, be pushed. <laughs> I'm a very reticent performer, and I don't know what I'm going to do until I know. So I very often say no prematurely. So uh, we got into rehearsal, and Walter and Annie Ryan King and myself uh, figured out a new point of view for Amos, and um, it worked, and it was sure fun that great number, Mister Cellophane. It's just, that's...
0: So then you did the city center thing for the five performances.
1: Yep, and then it went to Broadway, and I did it in London, and um, it was fun. Yeah. It's a great, great, great show.
0: And still running. Yes. Many, many years later. Yes. It's ironic that the revival has run far
2: longer than the original ran, and that the original was not... Same thing with Cabaret. For, yeah. Really, the, that, the revival that you did in 87 ran longer than the original production? No. No, no.
1: The Sam yeah. Mendes production.
2: Oh, oh, The recent revival. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about when you look at a cabaret or when, you know, because you've had this tremendous longevity in in the field, you've had the opportunity to see originals of shows. You've had the opportunity to create roles in shows, and then you see them
1: come back. How How is that for you? What's Not good. Really? Not good. I almost, almost never... Like seeing versions of anything that aren't as uh, organic in my mind to my mind or uh, rich, uh, and the shows are fine. but if I saw a legendary performance by somebody that that turned the the form around and made history like the opening of West Side Story and the opening of Fiddler on the Roof the opening of Gypsy I mean except for Bernadette Peters who I really think put such a fresh spin on Gypsy um I couldn't I couldn't really see it because I had I'd had gone to a Gypsy run through which is what they do before they went out of town with no costumes and just a few props and it was sometimes one of the best that a show has ever been seen. I saw Ethel Merman do that at the Winter Garden Theater, and um, it was hair-raising. And I I don't want to see anything that's less than hair-raising. That was.
2: And so, what was it like for you to revisit the role of the Master of Ceremonies? Because you yourself went into
1: a revival of Cabaret. Roughly twenty years later, well, I had not never been to Germany when I did it originally, and then of course I was there to make the movie, and it, I saw a lot of things that deepened my my idea about the master of ceremonies. It became darker and darker and darker, and the eighty-seven uh, MC was quite different from the sixty-six.
0: Is that partially because of what you saw, partially your own maturity, partially revisiting the role Probably both. You know, with both. different? You know, and and it, in what ways was it darker? How did you how did you change?
1: Oh, I, I couldn't I couldn't have uh, I couldn't have any affection for him ever yeah. again. Oh. Having having really been there and seen the the uh, the devastation hmm. and the degradation.
2: And I noticed, I mean, at one point in a film, you played Eichmann, I think, or Garibalds? In, Garibalds, in, in yes. Garibalds. Um, so there was even a through line to, to some of the things that you explored. Um, and another, I noticed another film that you narrated that uh, dealt with, with the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So that, that theme ripples through. And I guess that, as we all know... It's nice to be reminded of these who, things that I totally forgot. Who looks... But, well... It's, just just the light there, the mood. Out there. To but the mood. but obviously those are things that you know you can't help but be affected by. And as you say, when you revisit that character, it's interesting that you say you know you had affection for him once, and and though obviously the role retained meaning and and the opportunity to play it held meaning. That, that I, the I wanted himself.
1: nobody to ever say, "Gosh, that was fun," again. But I couldn't do it. So you wanted to be sure. The it wasn't people who that. want to see fun only. That's what they're going to see.
0: Well, they hear bright bouncy music without hearing the message in that music. I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, they're they're um, not alive. So let's,
0: let's let's lighten the mood a little bit. <laughs> You're an avid photographer. You've done a book on photography, photos yes. that you've taken over the years.
1: Yes, a book of photographs that uh, that came out last year called uh, "Pictures I Had to Take on Powerhouse," and uh, it was followed with a. Um, a show at the Staley Wise Gallery of my photographs that was a lot of fun to do, and we're in the midst of of doing a new book.
0: Since since we can't see the photographs on the radio, what kind of photographs are they?
1: Well, when I was on NPR, you know, Leanne Hansen, she (laughs) had the book in front of her, and she described them. (laughs) But why don't you? Because I don't have it in front oh, of me. <laughs> <laughs> Besides, I wouldn't want to talk about my homework. Oh, okay, okay. What <laughs> gotcha. Else you,
0: what, what else do you do for fun?
1: Oh, I I have this amazing granddaughter who's two and a half. Of course, every everybody's granddaughter. Everybody, is, uh, every right? grandparent has an amazing yes. grandchild. And, of course. Uh, no, but I'm. It's such a joy. It's a, really a lot of fun.
0: And you have two children of your own.
1: I have two grown children. And um, my son is a a chef, and my daughter is a a wonderful mother. She was a very accomplished actor. Uh, She was the young woman in Dirty Dancing, and she's a great girl. And uh, she's just devoting all that energy to being this remarkable mom.
2: And at this point, you mentioned that you, when you were approached about Chicago, that you were living primarily in Los Angeles, where are you these days? Are you here? No, oh, has been a
1: New Yorker.
2: <laughs> so you are here and you are around yeah, Broadway. Yeah, this is it.
1: And after 9-11, there's no place I would ever be again. Oh.
0: Well, on that note, Joel Gray, thank you so much for joining us today on Downstage Center on XM Satellite Radio.
2: My pleasure. I'm Howard Sherman from the American Theater Wing, and I remind our listeners that you can listen to these interviews and a variety of other streaming multimedia for free on the American Theater Wing website, www.americantheaterwing.org.
0: And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. Please join us again next time for Downstage Center.